Welcome to the Journal of the Southwest Radio Podcast, a production of the University of Arizona Southwest Center in the College of Social and Behavioral Sciences. I'm Jeff Bannister. I'm speaking today with Dr. Laurel Belante, Assistant Professor of Practice and Director of the Food Studies degree in the University of Arizona School of Geography, Development, and Environment, and Assistant Director of the Center for Regional Food Studies. Dr. Belante is a geographer whose research and teaching focus on food justice, food systems, and global environmental change. Belante lived and worked in the southern Mexican state of Chiapas for six years before returning to the U.S. to pursue master's and doctoral degrees in human environmental geography. Her research centered on small-scale Chiapas corn farmers struggling with a changing climate and neoliberal economic policies. Dr. Belante teaches several undergraduate courses from an introduction to critical food studies to food justice, ethics, and activism. She also co-leads the university's food systems research lab with Dr. Gigi Owen, staff scientist with climate assessment for the Southwest. I'm speaking with Dr. Belante about Southern Arizona's food system, which she has studied and advocated for since 2011. We also talk about her work in Southern Mexico and tie it back to the U.S. Southwest. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation, and I thank you for tuning in to the JSW Radio Podcast. We are truly grateful for your support. Dr. Belante, welcome to Journal of the Southwest Radio. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I want to start off um, by asking you to sort of help me understand in broad strokes um, the structure of the food system in Southern Arizona. A small question, I know. And um, uh, and also, actually, you could perhaps you could also touch on the um, the idea of a system itself. You know, whether or not that actually is a useful way to to describe what might be just a, you know, a bunch of networks. But but maybe you could just help us help orient us in terms of the in broad strokes, what the Tucson or Southern Arizona food system is like. OK, yes. Uh, massive question. I will do my best. So um, some of the just kind of orienting features would be to think that here we are talking in Tucson, which we're about an hour north of the border, which is one of, we're situated on one of the largest superhighways of food being transported from primarily Mexico, but even further south, coming up through the terrestrial point of, port of entry in uh, Nogales, and then coming up through uh, Rio Rico, where there's a whole system of brokerage houses where fresh produce is then distributed into other trucks and sent out to supermarkets all over the U.S. and even Canada. So there is a just incredible amount of food being moved through this region. And then also a lot of food that's being produced. I don't do as much work focused on kind of mass agricultural production, but I do know, for example, here in Pima County, our largest crops are cotton, pecans, wheat, and then there's a lot of uh, alfalfa production and other very water intensive crops throughout the region. Of course, uh, down in Yuma, the massive lettuce capital of the US where some incredibly high percentage of our winter greens are grown and harvested during the winter months. And then kind of zooming in more locally, we have a really rich system of, of local food production 
and consumption here in and around Metro Tucson, which is a little more related to what I do. Oh, and I should also mention, of course, that we are in a region with uh, large indigenous populations and regions that are um, indigenous areas. So here in Southern Arizona, we have the Tohono, Tohono Autumn and Pascoyaki tribes, uh, just the Tohono Autumn reservations itself cover more than 2.8 million acres, which to give an idea, that's about the size of Connecticut. So very, very large um, areas of land that are indigenous run and actually on a state level, 57% of agricultural operations in Arizona are indigenous run. So there's also that uh, dimension of things here as well. Mm-hmm. To your question about what is a food system and 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 what is food systems thinking do uh, you know whether it's helpful helpful or not? I I do consider myself to be a food systems researcher, and I say that because food systems is a way of thinking about the interconnections between all the parts uh, that we rely on to get food from crop to table, and then ultimately uh, whatever is left over to waste and then back to the earth in some way mm-hmm. or to the atmosphere as the case may be. So systems thinking is helpful in terms of understanding that there are interconnections that go from the seed, the inputs, water, land, the whole production process, then uh, harvesting, processing, distribution, transportation, and then access consumption and again uh kind of the end of the circle is waste and and most of the conceptions that you see of a food system are drawn in a circular form thinking that all of these uh nodes are interconnected and ultimately influence each other Mm -hmm. what i would add on top of systems thinking is so i identify and i'm trained as a political ecologist and what i think that political ecology then adds an extra very important layer to food systems thinking is that it brings in questions of power and control and uh, thinking about history and geopolitics and how all of these dynamics also have really important influence in what our food systems look like, what the possibilities are therein and to what impact, uh, you know, thinking broadly kind of the who benefits, who's at risks, and and what are the levers that we have to make changes. Mm-hmm. So you have, basically you have two, or we have two big food structures in Southern Arizona. One is the highly globalized um, kind of food circuit, the food superhighway, uh, you know, bringing foods from Mexico and places like Yuma, large scale production. And then and highly capitalized, I suspect, in most cases, you know, farms. And then um, we have a more kind of regionalized local foods system or structure. Is that uh, is that kind of describe the basic outlines? Yeah, I think that's a fair way to to imagine it. Of course, the reality is much more nuanced and uh, interconnected and messy than that. But yeah, mm-hmm. I think for simplicity, that's uh, a, in in broad strokes a, a nice way to frame it. Mm-hmm. And and so I actually do want to ask you about how they're interrelated, but but before that, maybe you could walk us through a little bit um, of the the kind of basic outlines of our regional food structure. Um, you know, how is food being produced? Where? Uh, who benefits from it? Uh, maybe you could you know layer it with a little of your uh, political ecological um, 
uh, understanding of understandings of political power and things like that. Yeah. So uh, there's a, a, definitely a range of, and for shorthand, I'm just going to say a local food system uh, to to kind of contrast to this this larger global food system that we were just discussing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a range of of actors within this. Uh, you know, everything from small backyard gardeners uh, to kind of it more intensive greenhouse production, uh, some slightly larger producers that produce crops that are that are consumed locally. Um, something that so in 2020, right when the pandemic hit, my colleague Gigi and Gigi Owen and I initiated a, a rapid assessment of the local food system in uh, in Pima County and how it was being impacted and and how people to to the impacts of COVID and yeah and some of the things that we that we saw was that even though our local food system is fairly small and certainly not provisioning you know a, a vast majority of the food consumed here in fact but that's one of the challenges right is that the the vast majority of food calories that are produced in our region actually go out of state uh, and to other places with the exception of of dairy that tends to be um, kind of more localized circuits of of consumption. But the importance of those local food systems was really laid bare during the pandemic. And uh, I always like to say that local food systems are about a lot more than just food. Uh, While the food is definitely important, there's all of these dimensions to local food systems that are vital and those are economic dimensions, social, community. One, some of the um, really important things that were highlighted during COVID was just the the interrelationships and the and the history of of trust and, and interconnection between different food system actors. Here was absolutely vital to our ability to rapidly pivot the systems that were in place to um, to adapt to the unfolding crisis that was COVID. So thinking about, for example, the closures of restaurants and schools, you know, right at a time when all of these farmers already had crops in the ground that were destined to be sold to those institutions. And then with those closures, they had nowhere to send their crops. And so there was this rapid re-engineering that happened on the drop of a hat, basically, to, mm-hmm. to make sure that producers still were able to, to to sell their crops and that food was able to get redistributed to people in need uh, through mutual aid networks, uh, consumers through kind of more direct consumer sales. Uh, a lot of people shifted to online platforms of uh, to, to make orders and deliveries. And that those are some of the, the important dimensions of that food system here in Metro Tucson. Mm-hmm. This stands in really stark contrast to the realities lived in more rural parts of Pima County and the ways that uh, other um, more isolated people did not experience that kind of uh, rapid reaction and and were actually subject to a a lot higher food insecurity and challenges in in rural areas and particularly uh, on the Tahona Autumn Reservation. I know we... um, conducted some interviews as a part of that research that really demonstrated how 
you know, it was just emergency response and figuring out how to get food to people in need and to do so safely when the one grocery store on the Tahana Autumn Nation was uh, basically bought out um, and and just facing these empty store shelves. So wow. really stark um, disparities between the urban realities and the and the more rural and native experiences of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I, I think that a lot of times, I mean, this is somewhat stereotyping here, but, you know, in the popular sort of imagination, imaginary, um, rural areas are often equated with agriculture and with production. But there are, uh, you know, rural Arizona is vast and uh, there is a lot of diversity, you know, in terms of you know ethnic backgrounds, ethnicities, um, areas, places. And, and I know that there are big swaths of you know, rural Arizona that are not at all connected to agriculture or only remotely. So that, that it makes sense that there would be a pretty major crisis. And then of course, the distance that people need to travel to find food. Yeah. The issue of food access is, is a really challenging one in rural areas of the state. And one of, one of the challenges that this is something I think about all the time. And I think it's a challenge, not just to Southern Arizona, but more broadly is, is how we, how we address labor in the food system is this massive, massive challenge. And so, so part of what I do in in the food studies degree and how I teach students is learning about the history of our food system and how it's been literally built upon the exploitation of people on the planet. And this is, you know, going back to colonialism, genocide, incarceration, you know, criminalization of immigrant populations. And we have, continue to, we have built this quote unquote cheap food system based on uh, being able to exploit cheap labor, whether that's slave labor or now incarcerated labor or undocumented immigrant populations. And we haven't figured out how to, effective ways to make sure that the people working the land and processing food and uh, bringing it to our tables, whether in restaurants or in grocery stores, we haven't figured out how to make those just livelihoods, even though all of our lives literally depend on those on those livelihoods. And that very much connects to the realities of, of rural peoples and the, and the dynamic. And this was a dynamic that was present prior to COVID, but then was amplified was that, you know, there's not a lot of people being driven into the agricultural workforce in rural regions. Uh, it's really challenging to staff to to find the labor to to do those jobs because generally it is really harsh conditions. It's uh, you know oftentimes seasonal, underpaid, lack of benefits. It's and 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 it's not necessarily you know farm owners fault for that right they're also scraping by and facing all sorts of challenges and you know assessing kind of making their best guess of of um how much risk to take on and how much labor they can hire but it creates this domino effect where it's it's really challenging for um for the workforce Mm -hmm. and who so i guess this in some ways brings us back to the question of the differences and connections between you know the in again in broad brush strokes the globalized food structure um, moving through Southern Arizona and then the sort of more localized food structure. 
in the big globalized food structure and, and also in the smaller one, who's so who's making the money? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that's a, a really good question. And I, I, I mean, certainly with the globalized food system, it's very easy to point towards corporations, <laughs> the obvious answer of, of who's really making the money. Uh, you know, you look at the corporations now control the inputs and they control the outputs and while farmers are in the middle taking on all of the risk. And so when I say inputs, I'm thinking you know, agrochemicals, seeds, fertilizers, uh, all of that is controlled by a very small handful of corporations. And then the farmers are the ones that take on all the risk of buying those seeds and inputs, hoping for a good crop. And then uh, at the end, once they have their outputs, all of that is then going into processing and retail that is also controlled by highly concentrated corporations. I think at the local level, that's a lot, it's a much more complicated question of, kind of who's benefiting. And mm -hmm. one of the dynamics that is really, uh, I think, important to mention here in terms of how it's playing out in Tucson is, is related to the city of gastronomy UNESCO designation that the city of Tucson received in 2015. And uh, this, this designation, right, is, is to celebrate and highlight the role of food and agriculture in this region. Very much that application was very much kind of staked on claims of us being located in a region with over 4,000 years of agricultural history in this region, um, you know, based on indigenous and uh, and other people of color that have been in this region for, for hundreds of years, their, their labor, right? And then bringing that into the current context of uh, all the different cultures that are here creating a really vibrant food scene within Metro Tucson. And all of that is very exciting. And I've been involved in different ways within how that has unfolded over time. But one of the big concerns on my radar and I know on, on other critical thinkers is like really this question of, okay, so we have this designation. So then what work is that doing and who is that benefiting? And well, there's been some recent work by um, some doctoral students that just graduated. Uh, Eden Kenke just finished in the School of Geography, <clears throat> Development and Environment. Their work really demonstrates that a lot of that benefit is really being going to white and middle upper class populations, largely the consumer class, right? The, the consumers that have the ability to go and sit at these beautiful restaurants and enjoy a, a fancy meal based on, you know, local produce that was purchased down the road. And so there's, there's a lot of tensions in that. And I think what I'm interested in is bringing more nuanced, it raises questions of how can local food systems be oriented around serving community, serving uh, work towards more justice uh, versus where do local food systems actually further exacerbate injustices and uh, inequalities and kind of who benefits. And, mm -hmm. and I think those are still questions that we're considering and, and, and trying to think about more critically. And, uh, and it's, it's challenging because the, you know, so much of the UNESCO city gastronomy designation has been really used to, brand Tucson as this 
destination for tourism, as well as this place for, um, you know, kind of creative types to enjoy living in the desert. Uh, and certainly since the pandemic, we've seen just a huge uh, increase in, in, you know, as people have gone into more remote work, like there's been a lot of relocation to the Tucson area and, and a clear evidence of, of ongoing gentrification happening and, and housing, lack of affordable housing. So it's not to say that necessarily the restaurants are killing it either, but I think there's a perception that there's certain people that are benefiting and certain, and then other groups that are just being left out of the, left, left out of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it seems like it, it. What you're saying really speaks to uh, what you were saying earlier about the need to approach, you know, the food structure as a system, um, or as a kind of a totality that involves so many different pieces, including, you know, the way that that uh, place gets romanticized within food cultures, and that in turn can propel growth, and you know, growth is both, you know. A, can be a, a boon to the to cities, but also a real um, problematic thing as well, especially in, in, you know, in Southern Arizona, because we are, um, you know, we exist in such a tenuous way vis-a-vis the resources that are locally available to sustain our, <laughs> our population, including especially water. Absolutely. Yeah. And I should have mentioned water earlier, uh, you know, in these, conversations about local food there's always the elephant in the room is like well can we even call it local food if it's not based on local water which here in Pima County so much of our water is coming from the Colorado River Mm -hmm. Uh, and I've done a lot of thinking about that and there's no easy answers but one thing I would say about that is uh, again going back to thinking about local food systems and doing a lot more work than just um, providing food I think there is a lot of valid arguments to make that we very much need to prioritize local food systems and that there's many ways to um, to make the case that those systems are deserving of <laughs> uh, you know certain scarce water resources more than for example uh, alfalfa production that's going to feed hungry cattle uh, in China and other places um, across Saudi Arabia and other places um, across the country and the world that, you know, literally taking these resources and and removing them completely from from their context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, the, it's there's such a need to be able to make nuanced um, analyses and to be able to share those, you know, and I think, but, but it's difficult because, you know, not, not many people have time to really dig in and, and study the food, the structure of the food, you know, system in any given place. Um, but Absolutely. I, I, yeah, oh, sorry, uh, Jeff, I just wanted to add one more going, thing, yeah. which was, I think that another, another way that, that systems thinking is, is really important is that we can identify when certain actions are really focused or on only one or two nodes within that system and not taking in kind of a more holistic perspective of how interconnected the nodes are. So I think Mm -hmm. with a lot of the focus in Metro Tucson being on the kind of, uh, you know, creative restaurants and elite dining and tourism experiences, it really leaves out the producer experience and uh, the, the farm workers and the rest of the service workers and 
and and just kind of assumes I think is based on some assumptions that demand will automatically create a supply, but that's really challenging when you're not doing work to address inequalities in land and water access, uh, as well as the general trends towards an aging farmer population, which is the reality. Arizona's one of the states in the nation with the worst um, replacement rate for farmers. And what I mean by that is that we have five times more farmers that are 65 or older compared to farmers that are 35 years or younger. And so we're getting to this really big challenge in terms of we need to bring more youth into food production and food systems work. And yet there's some definitely some valid efforts underway, but not nearly on the scale that we need, especially if we want to continue kind of prioritizing local food for not just for economic development of the region, but also for, uh, you know, community well-being and interconnectedness. Wow, that's a, that's a pretty astonishing num- uh, ratio, that inversion, that kind of age uh, age inversion of of uh, agriculture agricultural labor. What what are some other things that you see, you know, based on your um, COVID era and, and more recent um, studies of of the uh, of the region's food structure? So one of the things that we're working on now in our food systems research lab, uh, which I co-direct with GGON, is uh, we're trying to leverage research and resources from the university to support local food policy work. And so one of the things that came out in a lot of our interviews during COVID and and thereafter was this, um, the importance of interconnections and relationships across the food system uh, from, you know, producers, processors, institutions, consumers, restaurants, those interconnections are absolutely vital. And yet there's no real body that that is holding that space of interconnection and, and ensuring the kind of a flow of communication and exchange of resources and knowledge. And uh, historically, there's been several efforts. So back in 2011, the an initiative by the um, Southern Arizona Food Bank, together with um, partners in the College of Public Health, established the Pima County Food Alliance as a um, food policy council for Pima County. And for several, and I served in those early days from, I was served as a leadership council member from 2013 to 2016 and was involved in some really exciting work uh, during that time. We had several subcommittees that were working on different efforts, including uh, advocating for uh, food that's grown in school gardens to be able to be served within school cafeterias, something that previously wasn't allowed under Arizona health codes. Now, thanks to those efforts that that is allowed. Uh, another one of the efforts was to amend the the sustainable zoning code of the city of Tucson to permit uh, more urban agricultural production in in Metro Tucson, including animal production. And those are all really exciting efforts, but over recent years, for a number of different reasons, that the Pima County Food Alliance has, its membership has really dropped. And 
a lot of that has to do with it having been an all-volunteer council from the beginning with um, only a couple people that were able to actually have kind of paid staff hours for their participation and their efforts. Mm -hmm. And something that we've been reflecting on is that when you rely on volunteers to be, to kind of chart the path to policy change, it's one, it's not diverse, right? Because that automatically limits who's going to participate to people that happen to have the bandwidth and the time and the passion and energy to do that work. Mm-hmm. And that means, you know, largely like single young people uh, that with, you know, some amount of privilege, generally white, uh, we are always missing, you know, the voices of farmers themselves, uh, families, mm-hmm. uh, people of color and other, uh, you know, people that are struggling with low income, struggling with hunger, having those voices present in those efforts. So that's all a long preamble to say that that's one of the efforts that we're trying to support right now through our Food Systems Research Lab is to assess kind of what worked and what didn't with the Pima County Food Alliance in its previous iterations and what needs to be done now and into the future to to make sure that we have a functioning food policy council for our region. And this is important not just for policy change, but again, for the richness of interrelationship that is so crucial to uh, maintaining a local food system, to building out systems that are more just to raising consciousness about what's working, what's not, and to mutually support each other in the different efforts. Because one thing that's very clear to me is that this is a both and kind of situation, not an either or like we need, it's an all hands on deck and yeah. and so many different actors uh, within this, this broad ecosystem that is uh, Tucson's food systems are doing really amazing things and, and how much, bigger could that be if we you know, have the systems in place to communicate and to share and to and to grow our visions for for what the future could be and, and uh, so how I mean, I, I know that Tucson is the main place that you have looked at food processes, um, or one of the main places, but I also know that you have done significant work in Mexico. If you could just talk about, um, uh, you know, your experience and your research in Mexico, and perhaps bring it back around to how that informs what you um, are interested in in the work you're doing in, in Tucson and Southern Arizona, I think that could be very interesting. I originally got involved in just really wanting to delve into food studies and thinking about food and culture and environment. The passion goes back further, but really it it took on uh, new significance for me in 2010 when I started my master's degree. And I, when I started graduate school, I was really excited uh, to just be surrounded by all of this intellectual energy and I'm a total nerd. So, so I really enjoyed that. But one thing that was really challenging for me was the way that I think uh, particularly in critical social sciences, we're really good at the critique and we're, um, and, and we're good at taking apart what's wrong with things, but we have a much harder time at, at kind of building things and transforming things other than saying, well, this isn't the way to do it. And so when I was choosing um, 
a topic for my master's research, I decided that I wanted to focus on food uh, and food producers, not more than anything, because I, while I don't know what the answers to all of our problems are, I know that there is no sustainable future without uh, sustainable and just food systems. And so I wanted to focus on, on efforts underway, kind of safeguard what what has been successful and then kind of chart the, the path forward for, for different systems. And so for my master's research, I focused on these emerging organic, for lack of a better word, I'll say farmer's markets, um, even though, well, in, in Mexico, they talk about tianguis, tianguis organicos, these kind of wow. organic network, networks of organic farmers and artisanal producers. And I was really interested in just understanding how this was unfolding in the Mexican context and how it compared to other regions where uh, these kind of farmers market, local food systems had really become this uh, really popular wave of um, among different thinkers and, and actors. So what I found there was looking at the case of Chiapas was that as is the case here, <laughs> so many of the people doing this work, first and foremost, they're doing it out of passion for their place, for their culture, for their community. And, and it's, it's not about getting rich. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the one thing that's very clear is that, and I would say that that holds true uh, for both sides of the border. Being a small scale food producer, <laughs> there's not a lot of upward mobility there, but I think mm -hmm. there's a lot of really important work that's being done. There's work that we take for granted that's being done in those um, in those spaces. So in the case of Mexico, there is a vast, vast amount of agricultural biodiversity that is in the hands of smallholders. And that is repeated across the globe, right? So I think globally, there's something like almost 500 million family farms in the world. And these are repositories of cultural, social, and biological uh, diversity that is absolutely vital. And those systems relate from the, the diversity of the seed itself to the diversity of the systems of production and the ability to produce a, a, a wide variety of crops on a very small plots of land, everything from fruit trees to, you know, the three sisters, corn, corn bean squash, and these interrelated uh, agricultural, agroecological systems that are very much like closed loop cycling of nutrients uh, between the animals, the, the trees and the crops themselves all moving in, in more of a closed loop. Uh, and all of that is then intertwined and beautiful ways with language, with culture, with uh, culinary knowledge, with knowledge of just uh, solidarity mm -hmm. across peoples and all of that. Uh, I mean, I don't want to over romanticize it because it's oftentimes um, <laughs> braided with poverty as well. And so there's immense wealth in terms of knowledge and uh and, and, and biodiversity, and then uh, not a lot in terms of material wealth. And there's all of these threats to the maintenance of those systems. And there's, it, I get emotional because it's, um, 
for so for my doctoral research, I I focused on on corn farmers and how they're experiencing climate change and other environmental changes and how they're responding to that. And uh, in in the case of Mexico, it's like eighty five percent of corn is produced by small scale farmers. So that's like um, five hectares or smaller. So very small systems of production, much smaller than what we think about and like grain producers in the US. Mm-hmm. It's just massively industrialized. And, you know, kind of the cold uh, economic analysis of that is like, why are those farmers producing corn? You know, they should they should be uh, doing something else like high, uh, you know, they should be doing kind of high value vegetable production or, uh, you know, uh, planting watermelon. And, and a lot of the policy changes that have happened over the last 30 years have been really trying to push small farmers out of corn production. Mm-hmm. But, and, and, you know, my research on this is, is not groundbreaking. I mean, there's a lot of work prior to, to my own that really shows like corn is at the heart of sustenance for so many people in Mexico. It continues to be the largest source of calories for low-income populations in Mexico. It's also uh, what farmers know how to do best. And, and, and it's also a crop that's incredibly versatile. So you can eat it fresh. You can uh, make it into animal feed. You can try and process it and have it stored uh, in your larder for a whole year until you, uh, you know, and process it as you need into tortillas and tamales and, and all sorts of different uh, uses. Whereas uh, I remember one of my interviews, uh, someone said, you know, there's only so much watermelon we could eat, right? Like <laughs> we, we tried uh, the whole watermelon thing, like those, you know, um, the technicos, the, the ag extension guys, they came and they told us, oh, you know, do watermelon. And, and sure, the first year was great because only a handful of people in the in the community did watermelon and, and they got a really good price and, and it was great. But then the next year, Every, you know, word got out, everyone did watermelon. And all of a sudden people's homes, literally their homes and living rooms are stacked floor to ceiling with watermelon that they can't move. Mm. And, uh, you know, as that farmer said, there's only so much watermelon we can eat. And there's not a lot of other things that you can do with watermelon as opposed to corn, which just has this versatility. And so I think understanding those, the the really like human dimensions behind farmer decision-making is really critical. And it's something I would say that translates across context, uh, the need to just understand the humanity at, at heart of all of these systems. And um, similar to kind of bridge it back to the conversation about Arizona, uh, what is very clear from my research in Southern Mexico is like climate change is, is on, right? It's, it's happening now. It's no longer this distant threat. Uh, and that was, that was surprising to me because I, um, you know, I married into a Mexican family. My, my husband's from Mexico city. I've been traveling, uh, and living in Mexico on and off since 2001. And so it was really surprising to me to see this shift from, you know, talking with farmers back in the early 2000s that would say, you know, if you mentioned climate change, they'd kind of be like, what? Oh, you know, they wouldn't necessarily have an immediate way to kind of locate that term or, or what it, what significance it has in their lives. And then fast forward to, you know, the 2015, 16, 17, uh, when I was doing my research, everyone was talking about climate change. Like, I didn't even have to mention it. And already farmers are saying, you know, this is so 
challenging. And it goes back to something that I was saying earlier in terms of farmers being squeezed in the middle of these cycles of production in terms of the, the they are the players that are taking on all the risk, right? Because they take out the loans to, uh, to be able to buy the seeds, buy the fertilizer, pesticides, everything. And, and then hope that they plant at the right time, that they apply the, uh, you know, herbicides and pesticides at the right time and the fertilizers at the right time to coincide with rain, because a lot of these systems continue to be rain fed, mm-hmm. uh, rain dependent systems. And then, you know, fingers crossed, they get through th- and, and actually have a successful crop at the end that then they can sell. And um, because of changes in how crops are harvested and sold now in the neoliberal era, those are no longer going to uh, such guaranteed prices. So there's a lot of uh, price variability as well, even once you have your corn harvested. And so it creates just this real experience of vulnerability in all the senses. Um, and that definitely translates to the experiences here in Southern Arizona, right? Like, and And it's not just that things are getting hotter and drier, uh, but then these just dramatic swings in between extremes of precipitation. And so in Southern Mexico, a lot of what farmers are telling me is like, yeah, the rains don't come on the dates that they used to, you know, we used to always plant in April. Now we plant late May, (laughs) you know, sometimes pushing into June um, because of that variability in rain. And then uh, it doesn't fall with the, the rainfall isn't coming in the consistent ways that it used to. And so they would have, but you know, days and days and days of drought, and then these massive rainstorms and uh, or hail, or hail, or yeah, and and that has just huge impact in in a farmer's ability to to be successful. And I think that translates very much to Southern Arizona as well. Like I was just remembering this morning that you know in 2020 we had the second hottest and driest year on record in Arizona. Mm-hmm. And then one year later, 2021, we had the third wettest monsoon ever recorded locally. Mm-hmm. And so we're going from these extreme hot, dry conditions to these extreme wet. And, and so that variability is is just extremely challenging. I mean, I you know, I know that farming in these both of these areas has always been a pretty volatile and changeable affair. Mm-hmm. But uh, w- would you say that, you know, for for some time, at least farmers had a much more um, reliable set of conditions within to, within which to operate and then and then you mentioned neoliberalism and i'm just wondering if you could help us understand how the shift in sort of public policy um has le- uh you know uh lends itself to um to that volatility that increased volatility sure yeah great questions uh so that first question about the uncertainty. Yeah, I, I think you can talk to any farmer and they'll just say that uh, farming is it's it's a game of risk and it's uh, filled with uncertainty. And I think that that's been the case time from the you know beginning of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what has shifted, as you indicate, with your second part of that question, is the public policy and the knowledge networks that uh, kind of support that production. So. In the case of Mexico, the there's there's kind of two big shifts that I will point to that I think are important to understand. The first is 
the Green Revolution. And I and I should actually preface this with saying that what I'm about to say plays out very differently depending on the specific farmer's profile. So what I mean by that is where they're located in terms of topography of, uh, you know, if you're a highland farmer that's completely dependent on rainfall, it's going to be a very different experience than if you're a lowland farmer in a fairly fertile region with good soil fertility and access to uh, consistent, not only rainfall, but um, potentially irrigation. This plays out very differently. So with that, (laughs) to preface it, uh, so the first really um, big shift that changed how Mexico approaches production really came with the Green Revolution and with the widespread push to get farmers to adopt hybrid seeds. Um, So these are not genetically engineered seeds, but uh, seeds that have um, qualities that have been engineered through field trials to um, be highly productive. It kind of, in the case of corn, makes for a highly productive corn, but that it's a seed that cannot be saved uh, and then reliably produce a crop thereafter. And so this is uh, based on science that, you know, Norman Borlaug right down the road here in Sonora, a lot of that uh, research was started in in Sonora and um, in back in the 1940s, 50s. Mm-hmm. And that absolutely transformed the whole approach to agriculture and put us into what a lot of people call like this productivist time of um, agricultural production that's just really about like getting the most crop per drop and uh, and and uh, it goes matched with highly intensive irrigation as well as extreme um, chemical intensive um, inputs of fertilizers, herbicides, pesticides. So it becomes this whole technological packet that farmers have to uh, rely on, whereas prior to that, you know, they were in the practice of saving seeds, managing their soil fertility, doing a lot of um, uh, rain-based agriculture. So that's the first shift. And that first shift was really based on a lot of public policy that put, you know, that funded seed science, that funded, uh, that actually gave out those seeds and those tech packets to farmers to kind of encourage them to make this change. But then fast forward (laughs) to the 80s, 90s, um, and now up through the 2000s, 2023, what year are we now? Um, You know, the last 40 years, those policies have now been further transformed by uh, what a lot of people refer to as neoliberalism. Some people call it free, free market capitalism. Uh, and you know, in in the U.S., a lot of people are aware of NAFTA, the North North American Free Trade Agreement, which eliminated a lot of the uh, the kind of rules around um, agricultural trade between Canada, the U.S., and Mexico, and in it had a big impact in how corn was bought and sold between countries, creating um, a huge flow of, of corn to be uh, exported from the U.S. to Mexico. But that's really just one part of the story. Uh, a lot of what I found in my research is that, yes, that's certainly the kind of opening of those grain markets has increased a certain amount of vulnerability for for farmers, but it's all of the other things uh, that have transformed around that. And so what I'm referring to there is the removal of public 
support of seed science and extension support and uh, inputs uh, subsidies as well as subsidies for um, you know ensuring a, a minimum price once once farmers actually have their grain up production so that the stripping it's the combination of stripping all of those policies away and that that kind of systems of support that has created just and it's just amplified a thousand times the experience of vulnerability and uncertainty that farmers face Mm -hmm. so you get uh, you spend decades uh, constituting constructing uh, a whole agricultural uh, system based on the idea of increased yields and exporting crops for you know, for capital, for cash, uh, including guaranteed prices. And I know, you know, this extended over the entire Republic of Mexico, Sonora, for sure. Um, you know, much of the wealth of the state of Sonora was built on guaranteed prices for wheat and, and to a far lesser degree corn. All right. And then, uh, and then you're saying there, all of that stuff, the rug was basically pulled out from under all of that. Yeah. And what really surprised me because so much of my time in Chiapas, I, uh, historically, uh, lived and worked in in the highlands region where, where those it's very micro scale agriculture rain fed agriculture and i had not really spent such extended time in these um lowland farm areas i was absolutely blown away by the extent to which those policy changes had just opened the door for uh these massive corporations to get a foothold uh, even as far away as southern Mexico, Chiapas, you know, some of the most isolated places. And uh, now you drive around and you see you know, these massive billboards of Monsanto, well, now Bayer, right now, now controlled by Bayer, mm-hmm. uh, DuPont, uh, which has also been merged. <laughs> there's been so many murders uh, between these corporations. But basically, there's, you know, four or five corporations that are absolutely dominating the whole agricultural industry now. And so when farmers are facing these challenges of not knowing when to plant, how to plant, how to even understand all of the changes that are going on, their most available source of expertise turns out to be like a Monsanto official, uh, you know, and that automatically means that that farmers are driven towards a certain set of solutions, oftentimes <laughs> encouraging, you know, purchasing of additional inputs and other kinds of, of things that can, in the hopes of saving, salvaging their crop and, and, and whatnot, but over time it adds up to soil degradation, increased pest challenges. Uh, and then oftentimes if the weather is not amenable to, to how they've planted that season, they can be looking at total loss, then unable to pay their debts. And then from there, uh, you know, it can be a, a, a process of what, we call this possession of, of not being able to practice farming anymore and having to turn to either my out migration to urban areas or to the U S to transitioning from, you know, land ownership to then renting out that land or even having to sell it. And so it has this domino effect that really destabilizes uh, rural Mexico and has all sorts of impacts, you know, all the way through to our side of the border here, uh, you know, in Arizona. In terms of um, <clears throat> you know people people being pushed out and, and migrating um, into the U.S. Yeah, yeah, and um, I mean I definitely noticed it. I, so I first started going to um, Sonora when let's see ninety 
mid 1990s. Um, and if I think back on my earliest experiences, you know, then, and then going back now, so I was recently in Sonora in April, um, and I was in rural areas that I've known for a long time. And, uh, you know, there's, it's a, it's a very distinct feel. I mean, and this is a, just, a, you know, well, it's not just impressionistic because I was talking to old friends, people I've known for a long time. And, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of places that I've known for a lot of years are, have a very abandoned, uh, feel to them. You know, there aren't crops in the field. The houses in many places are boarded up and trees that they in their yards that, you know, would have been watered or dying. I mean, it's a <laughs> um, it's a rather apocalyptic in some places of, of Sonora, at least it's a rather apocalyptic kind of feel. Yeah, indeed, that uh, out migration is is very real and uh, and the impacts of that. And, you know, Mexico is also facing um, a challenge of like agricultural workforce and interestingly enough i'll mention this because i was also surprised when i learned this actually when i started visiting sonora when i moved to tucson in 2010 i hadn't realized how just as we have circuits of migratory farm labor here in the u.s mexico has the same right and so so many of the large scale fields of melons and squash and tomatoes and all of these things that we enjoy uh, as imports to the U.S., exports from Mexico, are being harvested by migrant labor that's coming up from southern Mexico, oftentimes from indigenous areas where uh, that have been extremely hard hit by these transitions and inabilities to you know, find other forms of income that don't rely on them um, having to migrate. And so that was a surprising thing to see. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can you t talk a little bit about that, those kinds of demographics in uh, in Chiapas? Mm. Historically, they're um, really since, you know, Spanish conquest and colonization, the, the large plantations that would have established from that time, even though there has been certainly a lot of after the Mexican Revo Revolution and the Reforma Agraria, there was a significant redistribution of, of land resources, but a lot of that large-scale land ownership continues. And so even prior to modern era, era, if you will, those plantations were always based on exploited labor coming from, oftentimes from highland regions, from indigenous regions. Uh, and those dynamics continue through today. There are a lot of um, a lot of what you just described in terms of uh, those migratory populations that also exist to a certain extent in southern Mexico, certainly in like coffee plantations, mm -hmm. things like that. When it comes to kind of smaller scale corn production, it typically is more local labor, uh, and that's also become a bigger challenge as you know. There's just this exodus of youth from rural areas. And so, whereas, you know, I think 30 years ago, people could make, I don't want to say <laughs> a just living next necessarily, but they could make a living being uh, farm laborers and they'd have you know, a certain amount of food security. I think the, the, the shifts are such that that insecurity has, has gotten to a level where if a young person can, they, generally will leave the, the rural areas. And so there's also uh, a big struggle for um, for manual labor within the, the agricultural systems in, in Southern Mexico. And I don't know what to say about that. It, it's a, 
it's really complicated. And it, and I think it's delicate for me as a white woman of privilege, you know, working in an educational institution to necessarily advocate that like those that we should do something to protect those jobs and those livelihoods right. because it's right. really it's really hard labor. But I also know from what I've researched and read that you know going full large scale monoculture industrialized system is not working either so it's a big challenge that i think we need a lot of creative minds and inspiration to put our heads together and think about how do we make changes that allow for people to have just livelihoods and to live off the land in ways that feel good and that are healthy and supportive and i think a part of that answer is is thinking about kind of uh, small is beautiful right like uh, adjusting technology and interventions to match the users themselves and the places and the people rather than you know kind of asking the landscapes and the people to just adapt to the technology if that makes sense and the answer is not going to be same the the same for any person right i i think it's totally valid that people are that have the perspective of you know agricultural labor is drudgery and the sooner we get rid of it the better like i i can totally understand that viewpoint but i also know uh from my experience talking to hundreds of, of farmers uh around the world and um there's also a real dignity and a real um mm-hmm. a real passion and a real beauty of connection to place and a commitment to land commitment to family and community and to to knowledge that that is valued by certain people and and so i think that that's worth remembering as well it's it's really a i think it's a broad spectrum of of perspectives about that and i will say in my interviews with corn farmers a lot of them i did ask kind of well what do you hope for you know with your your kids generation and and people would generally say, I want them to know how to do it, but I don't want them to ever have to do it. <laughs> and, you know, if they can go on and get jobs in the city, all the better for them. Uh, it, you know, at this point, so many rural families in Mexico really rely on at least one family member that, who's migrated to the city or to the U.S. and that's able to send resources home. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's also just this fierce defense of rural livelihoods as well. And I think that that feels different in Mexico because, you know, people are still alive that remember the Mexican revolution and that remember how hard their grandparents and great grandparents fought to have their piece of land. And so there's a resistance to, to letting that go. Mm-hmm. Um, and something that I think about here and in, in kind of my world, my context is I, I do, I try to practice a lot of critical self-reflection and, and, and how I go about my work and the questions that I ask. And, and one thing that's clear to me, you know, I became a mother a few years ago and uh, have been reflecting a lot about like, what's the future I want for, for my kids and what are kind of the like really important things that I want to make sure to impart to them. And High on that list is a connection with the earth. And I don't, I I would never sit here and say that we all need to become backyard gardeners or farmers in any sense of the word, but I do think that there is, and there's real scientific evidence to back this up, right? That like, we need a connection 
to the earth. And for most people, uh, eating food every day is our most direct connection to the earth. And there is so much that is really damaged and, and, and hurt right now in that relationship. And there's so much that can be healed through different practices. And I, yeah, there's, um, I listened to an interview um, with this author, Lucy Jones, um, who, who wrote this book, Losing Eden, and she talks about this nature deficit disorder. Like it's literally, you know, the science, the science bears out our, our, our need to be in, in, in touch with the natural world. And I, I think that food production will always be a part of, of how we can do that. You know, a lot of the challenges we faced are, 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 are gigantic and they and, and they can feel, you know, they're these wicked problems, right? These grand challenges. And that's when I feel that sense of overwhelm, I try to take a pause and take a deep breath and go look outside or remember, uh, take a moment to just appreciate the good work that's being done by colleagues here at the, at the university, uh, friends here in the community, friends and um, families uh, in Mexico and beyond that are that are doing this work and it, and it makes me remember you know it's the effort of many that will make the change and I always I, I love to invoke um, one of the quotes by Adrian Marie Brown who's a social movement thinker activist uh, who says that justice work is science fiction work uh, because we're we're doing the labor of inventing a future in a world that does not yet exist. And that quote always um, just helps center me and help me remember that, you know, justice is the horizon and we're all going to keep moving towards it because it's, uh, it's really going to be the only way that we're, we're going to get out of this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's a really great place to end it. I will also just add, um, Thank you for all the great work that you're doing, Laurel. Um, it's you know it's a it's it's been pretty amazing to see um, you uh, evolve in in your in your role as a as a researcher and a teacher. Um, you know I've known you for a long time, and uh, I really you know cherish our our conversations and our connections. You know with Mexico and other things. So so thank you for your uh, and thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you, Jeff.